climbed up to Enchanted Rock. Drake a cold shiner down and looking back. Hey there, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. You hang out on the other side of Texas. I'm your host, Jay West Texas Leeson. Figuring out how to push those buttons and make things work. Yeah. yeah. I like driving into a bar ditch sometimes. But glad that you would take time to be with us here on the most talked about afternoon radio program here in these parts of texas we have a uh, steve barrett he is vice president uh, executive vice president let me get that uh, let me get that title correct executive vice president of uh, plains cotton growers going to come in we're going to have a layman's talk on the farm bill and where we are i make this argument a lot of times you may not care about cotton but you should and uh, it's because it's the fabric of our billfolds as uh, so far as dollars are made up of fabric. Uh, it is the fabric of our billfolds and the fabric of our lives. Steve Red will be in in just a bit and we'll talk a little bit about all that's developing with the farm bill. You've got the dynamics in the U.S. House which of course passed a farm bill 213 to 211 last week and now you've got the senate and new developments in the senate today stay tuned for that uh, lots of political dynamics going on there and get into a couple of things as we go along i did today just have a column that i've talked about a few times here i feel like it's one thing to write Look, let me just take a point of privilege here. Whenever you write a column, you cannot write like you're going to talk on the radio. The The narrative is different. It's the same voice, but it's on different terms because it's in a different medium. I try to be conversational in what I write and how I talk about it as I write and I've even I've written TV scripts before, and it's totally different. Uh, radio, TV, and writing are all totally different. It's almost like, well, it's all kind of the same because they're holidays. But no, uh, Halloween is different than Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving is different from Christmas. And that's it's just three different mo's. You get in three different modes in those holidays, and. So whenever you write about something, it's it's difficult because you want to be concise. You want to get it in 800 words. You want Facebook to say, look, this is a four-minute read. And people decide, you know, that's worth my time and effort to uh, to get that right, uh, to, to sit down and to actually commit to reading. Well, that to say, I wrote a piece on – I wanted – the pe- I wanted people who've not paid attention, who've heard Tech say, well, we've got a vet school, and who've heard A&M say, there's no need for another vet school. And for Tech to say, well, it's a, uh, a particular kind, it's, it's a unique vet school, and for A&M to say, well, we still don't need a vet school, and to walk through the timeline of what's gone on there and the political dynamics that have gone on there. Now that the piece is published, 
I'm able to talk to you about it. You can find it there at dallasnews.com. And, uh, you know, if look, now I can say things on the radio that I can't say in print because I can be as reckless as I want to be on the airwaves. But my title for the piece might have been, When are we going to start treating Bevo and stop talking about Bevo? And if you know anything about A&M tradition, you'll get that joke. But uh, in the largest A&M and Texas Tech alumni base, the headline came out, Texas Tech A&M play high-stakes Texas Hold'em to build a new veterinarian school. And this is how I start. Uh, Excuse me while I read for just a moment because I'm going to have some insights as we go along, things that didn't make print, because, what? well, hold on. What I meant to say was that television, radio, and print are all different, but in print, I feel like you have to be the most... You get away with charisma on television. It's kind of like the reason why uh, Sid Miller... I've found, I mean, he's pretty indicative of a lot of politicians, Texas Agriculture Commissioner, because Sid Miller wants his appearances to be on TV because he's got on the felt hat, he's got on the whole Texas charisma. It doesn't carry as well through radio. And in print, you just, you have to be concise, but this subject matter, I'm telling you, and you, your thoughts as you have them as we go along, 806-745-5800. I missed a bunch of texts yesterday. I'll get to them today. Text in your thoughts, 806-745-5800 if you're listening live time here. But in print, you have to be concise and carry a narrative and carry the tone with the reader and not lose the reader. And there's so much to cover whenever it comes to this because it is the most intriguing i think the most intriguing political match going down in texas right now and it has a lot to do look these major universities don't just go hire like the ceo of intel or they try like ut tried with mcraven but what it comes down to at the end of the day is you have to know somebody who knows texas politics knows the legislature and has whatever particular approach that they might have and with duncan bob duncan at texas tech and with john sharp at a and m you've got two political pros sharp being a 40-year political pro and duncan being i've talked to a lot of people think that bob duncan was the master of the texas senate because he was able to run legislation and get quiet victories that turned out to be huge victories like teacher retirement system and things that that don't necessarily grab headlines but make texas turn and work so that to say lots of insights left out which is why i want to take the next couple of minutes and read through this with you and give some commentary as i go along the piece begins they ought to name the new buildings going up at West Texas A&M University in Canyon after Robert Duncan, Chancellor of Texas Tech University System. Duncan, a former Lubbock senator 
noted for his expertise in legislative process and stealth political conquests, has long pursued a veterinarian school for the panhandle. And that's true. Let me just take just a second and put a footnote in. Duncan has long pursued this in, I think, for the better part of a decade at least. And I know for a fact, well, I say for a fact, but based upon people I've talked to in background, Bob Duncan out of Lubbock and Kel Seliger out of Amarillo have pursued this hard for a long time. And even up until 2015, I'm told that Duncan and Seliger wanted to cut a deal with A&M to do a partnership for a veterinarian school in the panhandle. And that was refused by A&M and rebuffed by A&M to the point in which they said, no mas, we're just going to have to go our own direction. So, that footnote aside, uh, a former Lubbock State Senator, Duncan is known for his expertise in legislative process and stealth political conquest, and he's long pursued a veterinarian school for the Panhandle, a region in which a $15 billion livestock industry abides. The Panhandle is closer to vet schools at Colorado State and Oklahoma State than Texas's only vet school in College Station. And that's important context because if you can't get into A&M, you got to go to predominantly one of those other schools. In December 2015, 18 months after Duncan took the helm, Tech rolled out a plan to pursue a $90 million large animal veterinarian school in Amarillo. The rollout was a cunning bet. And another footnote, Duncan makes cunning. If you watch him, it's very cunning. And I don't mean cunning in the negative sense of the word. It's uh, it's a shrewd, uh, it might as well be a, a synonym, shrewd for cunning. It preceded a 2016 Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board report that found that Texas A&M University system wasn't producing enough large animal vets for rural areas. It recommended correction through a, quote, innovative, cost-efficient manner that does not duplicate existing services. When the, por when the report was released, Tech was already months into promoting a new vet school. And what got edited out there, I guess for brevity, I want to think for brevity, is a school that wouldn't sing about Bevo, but would start treating Bevo. And since then, a game of Texas higher ed, Hold'em, has unfolded in the panhandle with $180 million in chips stacked up in a 15-mile radius. Now, for perspective, and I may have to cut this short and take it back up in the, next, in the last segment of the show, but for perspective, UT's Bill McRaven, outgoing chancellor, I don't know if he's gone yet or not, he's on his way out, so in lame dunk status right now, took up, I think, a $290 million initiative to build a campus at the, well, in Houston. He didn't run it past legislators, he got on the wrong side of a lot of people, and I don't I think that's causation to correlation. You can make those, you can associate those two pretty easily. 
But if you take up the population center of Houston and match it to the population between Amarillo and the the site of Texas Tech Health Sciences Center, Amarillo, and West Texas University, West Texas A&M, excuse me, West Texas A&M University, there's no comparison on the population difference between those two. So whenever I talk about gamble, I think there is a gamble on both sides. Uh, A&M Chancellor John Sharp, a legendary 40-year political Texas political pro, and I think that if there were a Mount Rushmore of Texas politicians, you could make an argument that that Sharp could be on the honorable mention list. Not on it, but on the honorable mention list. And I've got a lot of respect for him politically. Lots of people say to me about their particular representatives, whether that be in Congress or in the Senate, Texas Senate or the Texas House, uh, well, he's a rear end, and I'm censoring for the radio, he's a rear end, but he's our rear end. And A&M, with all due respect, has a mighty fine rear end in John Sharp. Uh, but he's a Texas political pro and seems to be wagering on maintaining a Texas veterinarian education monopoly. Sharp has been playing the fast role because he can. He's got access to funds that Duncan does not. He's been playing the fast role to Duncan's slow role, following Tech all the way, raising Tech's bets through each step of the way. And it sets up a, a fascinating match there. Our friend Steve Verrett, Executive Vice President of Plains Cotton Growers, in studio with us. How you doing, Mr. Verrett? I'm doing well. How about your own self? Pretty well. Yeah. On a scale of well, kind of well or really well? Well, you know, as we discussed off there a little bit, this spring's been pretty tough. Uh, you know, we went into this planting season dry. Uh, hadn't had much rain in this area really since last October. Uh, so uh, folks were were pretty nervous and had a tough time. There's, there's some areas that have finally started getting a little rainfall and have been able to benefit from that but you know we got a lot of folks with uh, dry land cotton that either never got enough rain to emerge or got just enough rain to basically sprout and ruin the seed so but there's also on my own personal operation mine and my sons we have some cotton that looks really good some early irrigated cotton that looks really good but uh, you know, we've also got some that we just planted uh, last week on the 21st. Uh, first day we were eligible to plant uh, as basically uninsured. We lost the cotton to a hailstorm after the final plant date. And so we took the insurance and now we have planted uninsured cotton. It's kind of the second crop. Hopefully the, the weather will work out great. Maybe we'll have a little bit to harvest from that. Well, Steve Brett, it's important, I think, for you to lead with that to let people know that you've got stake in the game. This isn't just a game that you come in and give talking points and some charisma to and, you know, hobnob in the Capitol. You've got stake in the game yourself. And I, I say all that not to patronize you, but to lead off here, 
I, I make the argument a lot of times and told people yesterday, just get ready. We're going to talk about some farm bill policy. <laughs> and that's to a lot of new listeners who may not have an understanding of ag policy, which is I'm like next to Texas education policy, public education policy, um, may be one of the most headache-granting uh points of policy that I've come across but what I say is a five billion dollar and this is my number based on things I've read and heard I've come up with this number and somebody can challenge me on it if they want to but by and large a five billion dollar economic impact within a hundred mile radius Mm -hmm. of Lubbock how important is it to people who've never even stepped on a tractor that West Texas cotton succeeds? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, if you get out and just drive around a little bit and you see what's going on out in the country, uh, it, it's certainly cotton is a big part of that. That's that's the biggest crop, but it's other crops, you know. It's peanuts, it's sorghum, it's corn, it's wheat, but certainly cotton is the the dominant crop. And, you know, the thing that I mention to folks a lot of times, um, that cotton is a bit different from some of the other commodities as well. Not to, you know, uh, talk bad about the other commodities because they're all important. But cotton, you know, when it's harvested, it's not a marketable product until it goes through a cotton gin. And so it has to be processed. Peanuts are much the same. You know, they have to be dug, but then they have to be shelled or whatever before that they can be used. But uh, cotton has to be ginned before a farmer can sell it. It separates the seed from the lint and the trash. So that's another, That's you think of it as manufacturing. That's a manufacturing process that goes on here as well as besides the growing part. And then the cotton seed, a big part of that is also processed here at two large oil mills. Uh, the Paco oil mill and the Archer Daniel Midland plant. So, you know, it's it's certainly about the production agriculture. That's where it starts. If you don't have that, you don't have these other things that I mentioned. So, you know, it's important that we have a base of farm policy that tries to ensure uh, the stability of that production in industry uh, in times of, you know, significantly or long periods of low prices are certainly from the vagaries of weather, and that's where crop insurance comes into, which is separate from the the farm policy side, but it is all tied together. Yeah, but so far as, and this is what I don't understand, has there ever been an economic analysis of if cotton were one year, God forbid, to only be a $2 billion economic impact, to drop from, from five to two one year, and we certainly risk that policy. We're going to get into D.C. and federal policy here in just a moment. But what would that feel like to the average citizen within, well, I don't care if they live in Lubbock or not, within a 100-mile radius of Lubbock, what, would that, what sort of costs would they start incurring if cotton were to have a very detrimental period? Well, I don't know that the average citizen in Lubbock might not realize it at all in one year but it's a cumulative effect i mean you know it's really about um 
you know, everything that goes into producing a crop, and it's the folks that provide and sell all of those inputs, whether it's the seed, whether it's the fertilizer, whether it's the parts for repairing equipment or buying new equipment or whatever it is, you know, and when uh, a, a producer, you know, maybe misses one year and, you know, it may not be missed that much, but it's the prolonged, if this thing, you know, was to slip and we had that kind of problem, you know, two, three years in a row, then it'd be significant. Yeah, it would it'd be felt significantly. start with jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Because jobs related to the there industry. Are people, there are many jobs related to the industry that many times maybe we don't even think about. And so it's not just the ones directly working at the places I talked about, the cotton gins or the oil mill, or actually on the farm doing the work. It's those people that the industries that support all of those things that I talk about. So let's get in with where cotton stands. And we can't, you know, I've always heard Pete Laney said that one of his great regrets in serving in the legislature was finding out how little he could actually do about agriculture from the state legislature. Now, there's plenty that can be done, but it where cotton and other commodities are really impacted is in D.C. That's right. So we passed a disaster bill in which cotton was brought back into Title I. I don't even want to get into the title stuff, but was essentially brought back into the farm bill and now we've got this process playing out where the house has passed the farm bill the senate tomorrow is supposed to take up the farm bill the house the house has work requirements and snap Mm -hmm. requirements and there's even a push to move snap into health human services away from the agriculture department Uh, pat roberts chairman of Senate Agriculture said there's no way we're moving SNAP. We aren't even going to touch SNAP because he needs 60 votes mm-hmm. on the Senate side. What can people expect to happen tomorrow and then in the weeks to come, given where you see things, and you're very in touch with D.C., where will we be a month from now, do you think? Well, let me back up just a minute and talk a little bit about the House process and what we got there. You know, there was a lot made about the fact that it was, you know, a Republican-only bill. It was the first time it's ever been such a partisan bill. And that's not exactly right, you know, coming out of the House. I mean, at least the 14 Farm Bill and the 2008 Farm Bill, for that matter, pretty much had to be passed by the party in in power to get it out of the house now when you put a conference together that's a different matter when it comes back for the final passage you you got to have both sides working together on it but more the nuance what you the leading party at that time would have been democrats in 2008 for the 2008 farm bill that's right 2014 the republicans were in charge so it it works both ways Um, but the house bill you know they made the choice made the decision that they wanted to do their reforms to SNAP, which is the work, some additional work requirements and, and training. Uh, work requirements and training for food stamps. That's right. And it hadn't, it's not like there hadn't been work requirements in the past, but lots of times many of the states just bypassed those is what they did. They provided exemptions. But regardless, when the Republicans made that decision, the Democrats made it ultimately clear that they weren't going to be any part of that. And so if it was going to get done, they were going to have to do it by themselves. 
by the the Republicans were going to have to do it. So, you know, the first time they weren't able to get it done because it, some immigration issues got tied up in it, so it failed. But it came back up last week. They were able to find the votes to get it done, 213 to, 200, to 211, uh, with four folks not even uh, voting. So it was done. But one of the things, while it, it's, it's what we refer to as a baseline bill, there's not a whole, there's not really any big improvements to the farm bill. It's pretty much status quo, and there's a lot of folks feel like that there needed to have been some improvements made. But the fact of the matter is... People inside the cotton industry? Inside the cotton industry. Agriculture as a whole. Because, you know, when you look at where cost of productions are and when the the safety net basically has stayed the same, it's, uh, you know, it, it hasn't improved to kind of meet the times, we think. But we certainly recognize, too, what's going on in our country and the deficits and and those things. So, you know, uh, agriculture was committed, and certainly the House Ag Committee chairman was committed to write a baseline bill. Uh, uh, yeah, but you, listeners can't see me. I'm rolling my eyes. Look, I appreciate the stewardship, but we're talking about half a percent of the federal budget. Yeah, less than what, less than what, that's right, half a percent. Yeah, that's correct. So it's, it's almost like Cinderella trying to look like her wealthy stepsisters. I mean, it's just. I mean, I appreciate, again, I appreciate the gesture, but let's stop with the pretense. I mean, if we really want to get in with spending, well, well there are a lot of places where There's no start. doubt, and that's the thing and, that's... Well, half a... Pre- I should qualify, because my friends on the right will hit me. That's just simply on the agriculture that's right. part. That's the, not the food stuff. That's, that's exactly correct. That's just the part that goes to agriculture. And that's always been, that's been our contention. I mean, and that's what's going to happen on the Senate when we get into that process of the things, people that are going to be coming after it. We, we come out relatively unscathed on the House side as far as harmful amendments. There was no uh, additional payment limits uh, made, no crop insurance, AGI means test, the sugar program uh, was able to be maintained. So even even though the Republicans had to do it all from a farm perspective, a farm bill side, it was relatively unscathed. No increases, but was not hurt. Now fast forward now to the Senate, you know, they, they passed out the bill out of the Senate Ag Committee with only one dissenting vote, and that was Chuck Grassley from Iowa, and mainly because you know, he wasn't able to get, his staff didn't get all the paperwork done for his amendment to be uh, considered uh, during the subcommittee or during the committee process. So so people who are not not accustomed to listening to you, Steve Rett, when you say Chuck Grassley, we're talking about a Senate bull from Iowa that's correct. who's interested in corn. That's right, and he's also interested in, you know, an idealistic, what he feels is an idealistic farm, which is, you know, basically one person and maybe having a part-time job like a lot of folks do in the Midwest, which is not the case for our farmers in this area. But the point is, is that the Senate passed out a bipartisan bill with no work requirements, no changes to SNAP, but now that it hits the Senate floor is where the attacks are going to come. Yeah. And there's going to be a lot of attacks on crop insurance, uh, more restrictive payment limits. And these are the folks backed by both the right and the left, folks like the Heritage Foundation on the right, the far right, and then also folks like EWG, the Environmental Working Group on the left, that seem to think that somehow 
doing away with farm program payments is going to be the solution to our nation's problems, whether it's deficit or whatever. And this gets to the point you make. You know, it, it's pencil dust compared to anything when we want to talk about trying to do something to balance the budget or hit the deficit. Steve Brett, we were just talking about the Farm Bill, anticipating the Farm Bill rolling to the Senate floor tomorrow, maybe the next day, people, you think tomorrow. Yeah, it's going to start debate and, and debating amendments tomorrow. Um, you know, okay. everybody's thinking they should get finished up by Thursday is what the plans are right now. Okay, and this is when you say the attacks will come, but this is also when politics begins to play mm-hmm. out. External uh, external problems, right. that not necessarily relating to the farm bill. Bob Corker is a U.S. senator from Tennessee. He's a Republican, has taken exception with the president on several occasions, has made his displeasure with the president known as the president's made his displeasure with Corker known. Corker's very concerned about tariffs, and he plans to address those through the farm bill this matters in west texas as it does in a lot of agriculture regions i want to play for you a little 45 second sound clip from bob corker and his intentions as things go to the floor tomorrow in the senate according to politico senator bob corker is making renewed efforts to block president donald trump's tariffs on united states allies however gop leaders are expected to halt his latest attempt the Tennessee senator offered an amendment to the Senate's Farm Bill, along with Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey. The amendment would allow Congress to approve or reject tariffs levied against countries over national security justifications. But Senate Finance Chairman Orrin Hatch is concerned the amendment is too broad for a bill on agriculture, which is why Senator Corker thinks the amendment is appropriate for the legislation, because upcoming tariffs will impact the agricultural community in the United States. Okay, so not necessarily a sound clip from Corker, but you hear the justification uh, with Corker there. Uh, What's your thought immediately as you hear that little roadside bomb going off on the road to a farm bill? Well, you know, I know there's a lot of people that are very concerned about what's going on uh, with trade and some of the salvos that's being fired. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, I'm I'm with the president, what they're trying to do. Uh, I would agree when they say, you know, we've been in a trade war for the last several years, and we've been losing uh, to a great extent, especially with folks like uh, the controlled economies like China. Uh, but but on the other hand, you know, what do you I mean, whoa, whoa. for new listeners, what do you mean by a controlled economy? I mean that the government basically controls most of the economy and makes the decisions, especially when it comes to agriculture, on both what they sell and what they buy and how much they pay for it or how much, you know, they, it's a controlled economy. Okay. So uh, not anything close to any kind of free market. So, uh, but on the other hand, you know, if you're, even though there's not any, we got wheat farmers right now that are trying to sell a crop. You know they're they're being affected by this. And if you look at a, you can look at a price chart uh, that you know all of the grains have been pretty much in a free fall. And part of, I'd be the first to admit it's not all completely about the tariff talk. 
but a big part of it is that. There's no doubt about it. So, you know, if you're sitting here trying to sell wheat right now, it's kind of hard to want to be patient. You know, when you hear from the administration, just trust us, you know, we're going to get this deal worked out. So uh, my point has been to anybody that will listen is that uh, we understand what you're trying to do, but we we need to have some we need got to have some results on this pretty quick. Some of these things got to come to an end. We had talked about earlier that a nice thing on this, if we could have got this NAFTA deal renegotiated and taken care of, I think that would have uh, eased a lot of the concern with what's going on with China and Europe and some other places. If we could at least got NAFTA out of the way, yeah. But we haven't got any of it done, and so. Uh, uh, I think uh, there's many in agriculture that you know want the best deal that we can get, and hopefully we can make some headway. But uh, you know they're getting very nervous about it. And, and so you see a lot of headlines today, at least I do, on and everybody's got their own take. But America's losing a trade war. Or America will win a trade war. And you've already made the case that we've been in a trade war for some time. And certainly, you know, if I want to go wonk and get into cotton policy, that can certainly be the case with China and others. Uh, But a tariff being uh, a tax or a duty on something being imported or exported, some government 101 there, economics 101, excuse me. Um, My understanding you know, as of a month ago, two months ago, was that it's the sorghum guys and the port guys that are in the most trouble. Yeah. Are they still at the top? Are there others around them emerging as these things begin to escalate? The the port, from my understanding, I'm not an expert on a lot of this stuff, but, uh, you know, there's some issues going on with pork exports, I know, to Mexico, for sure. And that kind of goes back to what I mentioned about trying to get that finished up. The sorghum guys... NAFTA. Yeah, with NAFTA. Uh, the sorghum guys were under, you know, they had been, uh, China had filed a, uh, a complaint uh, with them, a dumping, anti-dumping complaint. That's been worked out. Uh, but the problem is, you know, the sorghum industry spent a tremendous amount of money trying to defend all that and work, you know, to to get out of all of that. So uh, soybeans certainly are one that when we talk about China, talking about, you know, uh, putting tariffs on that uh, corn as well they've mentioned cotton uh, you know cotton doesn't seem to be as affected at least price wise right now nearly as much as what a lot of the other commodities now, are so but uh, tell but, me this though Steve Verrett is Corker right that there should be concern in a republic three branches that the president's able to lead the charge whenever it comes to foreign trade? Well, you know, what I understand about government, I mean, when you look at the U.S. Trade Representative's office, that's a part of the administration. They've always had the lead Mm -hmm. on trade and trade issues. So nothing new. It's nothing really new. Now, I think certainly this is, uh, it's new from the standpoint of an administration using that authority as much as as much as he has do you fear cotton getting involved in the tariff and non-tariff and barrier problems i i worry much more about non-tariff issues i was reading an article uh today or yesterday when especially when it comes to china you know they 
in essence, you know, we're importing way more from China than they're importing from us. So when it comes for to a tit for tat on on placing tariffs, they can't win that game because they're not importing as much from us mm-hmm. as we are from them. But they Post have production, though, right? It's yeah. always man. Uh, what's the label always read? American grown produced yeah. in China. Yeah. But the deal is, is these non-tariff trade barriers. You know, technically, on the books today, is that China will not import any cotton that doesn't come in cotton bagging. Well, we don't put cotton bagging around cotton today. It's either polyethylene or woven polypropylene mm-hmm. is what it is, mainly because of the cost. But that's just an example of what I'm talking about. Or maybe they decide everything's got to be fumigated or whatever. There's lots of ways that they can retaliate that don't involve tariffs. So that's the things from a cotton perspective lots of time that concern me way more than it does about maybe them imposing tariffs in that regard. So quickly as we close out this segment here, what else other than Corker, what do you expect to come to the floor through the rest of the week in the Senate that could impact the farm bill that people might not expect right now? Well, I don't know that there's any. I don't know what's unexpected. We have enough on our plate knowing what to, what we do expect. And once again, we know there's going to be an amendment that's going to uh, put means testing on crop insurance, uh, the subsidy on crop insurance, basically. There's also, we know there's going to be a uh, 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 further tightening of payment limit rules by Senator Grassley is going to uh, put an amendment in on that. We know there's probably going to be an amendment Wait, uh, well, to do away with the sugar program. Too? It will. It will. And and especially that's where we think that, you know, certainly this means test on, on crop insurance is the one that's going to raise the most ire because there's no place in the country that buys higher levels of crop insurance than the Midwest does. You know, they can they can easily but afford what's his game there well like if you're corn's guy he, he's not US so Senate. much on the on the on the crop insurance deal but it is on the on the payment limit side i think it's just a belief he even those folks in corn country most of them are going to be hurt greatly by what he's he's talking about as well but he's just he's been at this so long and it's been hammering on this for so long i just don't think he he uh and he sells it from the standpoint that, you know, he wants it to go to real farmers. And without getting too much in the weeds, it's currently under the, the rules today to be considered actively engaged. You have to provide management or labor. Okay, it's it's or. And, and he's basically saying it needs to be just labor is what it needs to be. If you're going to receive support from the government, you need to be, as he puts it, dirt under the fingernails. Well, that's fine and dandy, but what do you do about landowners that receive crop rent and receive payments as well? They're not out there. You know, they're retired. Uh, You know, there's some people might say that, well, they don't need anything, but they're at risk just like the farmer is. Let's talk about the average age of the farmer now is around 60 years old. There's a lot of those folks that can't. They're not out there you know, doing the physical labor, but they're overseeing it. They're there every day, and they're very much actively engaged. So it's just an idealistic view of what he he sees as the that uh, 
a problem in my my opinion in search of a solution uh so you're essentially grassley's trying to uh, how shall i say it play a cassette in a cd player given yeah, how economy that, that, has changed that's really right and i said that backer it's a solution in search of a problem um you know that's right i mean the, he he wants to talk about well if i do this it's it's only going to affect a small percentage of farmers well he's right about that but those are the farmers that are producing the bulk of the goods and i can't speak for any other area of the country but here and i can assure you uh there's n- nobody farming land in west texas that's not family uh related or family operations we don't have there are a lot of people think that when they talk about corporate farming that they're talking about adm or they're talking about monsanto or t- those are not the people doing the the farming out here they may be incorporated for uh legal reasons or whatever but they're all family operations their fathers their sons their brothers their sisters their nieces and nephews it's a family operation and it's their full-time job they're not doing this and have a part-time job in town they're trying to to do this and support uh their operation and their employees from farming and farming alone so my final question to you here steve Britt: whatever the senate passes is not going to be passable to the house's appetite for reforms as it involves work requirements for snap uh currently that being the foremost what then is going to happen because people who may not pay much attention whenever a chamber passes a bill another chamber passes a bill and they are not the same bill then you got to go to conference committee that's right my take is that what comes out of that comp given the first failure of the farm bill the first mm-hmm. ra- first round right. in the house in the house with the tea party backing mm-hmm. out now i understand they had ulterior motives they wanted to do something about immigration right so they right. went with the democrats right. and went down the first time i don't think my read is that those tea party guys aren't going to get to the table the second time around so what's going to happen if a bill comes back and doesn't meet the house's appetite for reforms my gut that's why i think we're not gonna we're not gonna see this farm bill debated until after the elections that's really? just that's my gut the conference i'm talking about and then a final product because for the very reasons you said i mean number one the democrats believe they're going to make headway and maybe even take the house back and so they're not going to be interested in doing anything that's going to give any kind of victory. But doesn't that reset the whole schedule then if you've but, got new leadership? But think about this. I said after the election, I didn't say after the new Congress. I'm talking mm-hmm. about lame duck. Because then Democrats will be free to vote because the elections will be over. Republicans will be free to vote because the elections are over and then possibly a compromise bill it won't look like the senate hopefully it won't have some of the restrictions on the safety net side that the senate may end up having in their bill but it won't have maybe all the work restrictions that's in the house bill there may be something now the the fly in the ointment on this deal is where the president's going to come down on this he come out with a statement of administrative position today saying that you know he stopped short of vetoing, but basically saying he didn't like the Senate bill because it didn't have the work requirements in it. But he also went on to say, 
and that's why I suspect it was written by Mick Mulvaney, his budget director. Mm-hmm. Also talking about they wanted a to guy, see... Hold on, hold on. A guy who a lot of ag guys don't like. That's right. I won't say that for... Okay, you went ahead and amen yeah. I wasn't going to speak for you. No, that's ahead. right. That's right, because, I mean, when he was in the House, he he was very much against agriculture. Uh, it also talked about wanting more restrictive limits on farm program side, too, as well, in this statement of of administrative position. So uh, that's, I think, really, probably after we get past the election in the lame duck, we may be able to get something worked out between the two houses. The question's going to be, where's the president going to be? What's he going to be willing to sign at that point in time? And you don't know right now. No, absolutely not. Steve Barrett. Executive Vice President of Plains Cotton Growers. I think that we ask that question a lot on, <laughs> on where the president's going to be. We'll just see how he wakes up. Um, I've never fired off tweets at uh, 6 a.m. Maybe I'll just take a week and try to be like <laughs> Trump and figure out where I'm going to be. Appreciate you taking time to be with us, Steve. Glad to be here, Jay. Appreciate it a bunch. Uh, transition back to we'll just call it ag day here on the other side of texas trying to meet our aim to speak up for and uh, from this side of texas in the first segment i was talking about this piece that rolled out in the dallas morning news of mine it'll be in print tomorrow and it, it talks about duncan's quest bob duncan's quest at texas tech to get a vet school for the Panhandle, which is closer to Oklahoma State and Colorado State's vet schools than it is the state's only vet school at Texas A&M. A&M Chancellor John Sharp, who's been in politics in Texas, he's a pro, uh, seems to be wagering against Duncan and Texas Tech to keep a monopoly on veterinarian education. Sharp has been playing the fast role, this Duncan's slow role over the past well since december 2015 and they've raised text bets all the way and i go through the process and i'm only reading this to give you some footnotes a month after text rollout in december 2015 sharp announced a pipeline plan quote-unquote pipeline that would send undergraduate uh vet uh, vet undergraduates from West Texas A&M, Tarleton State, Prairie View A&M, and Texas A&M Kingsville to a new veterinarian complex in College Station. A $120 million complex opened in late 2016, which was a response to a 2009 report from the state that said that Texas A&M effectively ought to stop singing about Bevo and start treating Bevo. And so they've got respective vet programs with livestock at these various four, West Texas A&M being the primary that deals with the largest of large animals, uh, livestock. And the thought being that upon graduation, veterinarians would hopefully pipeline themselves back to where they came from. And then in the last Texas legislature, I've written about this in the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, text plan went on hold went on silent and i didn't have an, again 800 words how much are you going to write my understanding is that sharp's people got to abbott and said look this can't happen abbott came back to tech and to the regents and said you're going to have money for your dentistry school in el paso 
or the vet school but you won't have both so tech put things on pause and there you have bob duncan in my estimation i don't think he'd ever concede this to me nor have people around this conceded to him. i'm just deducing this this is not a tabloid it's just simple texas political deduction duncan knows process he knows how things work and i don't think it was surprising to people who've worked with duncan over the years that somehow a plan that was on pause walked out of the legislature with four million dollars and it's not the money that matters there it's the green light that matters that the legislature said okay go ahead go ahead with the plan that's what was important there so you got a 90 million dollar infrastructure going in on the health sciences center uh, property in amarillo and then this past march john sharp decided and i don't think out of the blue that a&m was going to put quote nearly 90 million dollars into west texas a&m university thus building a quote two-way superhighway between canyon and college station and that investment would include 22.8 million dollars for a veterinary center building 48 million dollars for an ag complex ag sciences complex which is broke ground in 2016 and moving a a diagnostic laboratory from amarillo to canyon and there it's all in the wording that we're going to match that 90 million dollar initiative and then duncan and i phrase this all in the game of texas higher ed hold'em duncan called the bet and i say duncan but tech called the bet last month when the amarillo economic development alliance pledged 69 million dollars to cover the remainder of the 90 million dollar goal for tech and what's so interesting about that there's a group that meet and this just shows duncan's mastery of process there's a group that meets and this is important wherever you are whatever wherever you come from listen to this program there's a group that meets called the the legislative budget board and that group guides the budget for the next legislature puts together a rough draft for the legislature duncan and the amarillo economic development alliance in texas tech got all the construction pledge done it's contractually obligated and got it in before the letter from greg abbott went out that effectively kick starts starts up the legislative budget board which would have been a problem to walk into the lbb and not to have all the money together for construction because what tech needs now and now this is the name of the game 18 million dollars in initial startup and A&M is going to fight back. Mark my words, this is what will happen. A&M, unless they completely back down, which I don't think is in Sharp's DNA, will fight back and say, we put this infrastructure, we got a pipeline from West Texas A&M to A&M. This is a reduplication of services. And these lawmakers, especially these conservative Republican lawmakers, will be pushed with a question of, do you want to put 20 million in now and then as the school grows maybe go to 50 million per year and that's going to be the heat that a&m puts on so right now a game of texas higher ed hold'em in the panhandle 80 million dollars supposedly stacked up within a 15 mile radius now repercussions of this 
I think A&M strategy has risks. First being that $90 million claim. How they get to $90 million, I'm not sure. Because you got tuition revenue. Again, you can go read the piece. You got tuition revenue bonds included there. You got puff money included, permanent university funds money involved there. And then I guess it costs some, what, 20, $25 million to move a lab 15 miles down the road. And so that number is going to have to be looked at. But I think one of the biggest things is the permanent university fund. And that A&M and UT, the, the PUF fund, is a constitutional p- funding provision comprised mostly of oil and gas revenue from public lands in West Texas, to which A&M and the University of Texas system only have access. A&M last year took $300 million from the PUF fund. UT took $600 million, and that goes towards construction builds on those campuses. Now, if Sharp wants to use Puff Fund money to obstruct the region's needs via profits for resources derived from within the region, that could raise, to use Aggie vernacular, a lot of hullabaloo. And then, you know, the pipeline argument, I wrote about that this weekend, and the AJ, the Health Sciences Center, forever was opposed by the University of Texas because they said that they could pipeline doctors up the cap rock and into the panhandle. never happened. Lawmakers said pipe dream, not pipeline. And then once Preston Smith from Lubbock was elected governor, we got a medical school at Tech. Today produces more medical professionals than any other entity in texas so come next spring we'll all know if texas tech holds the cards for a vet school but in the meantime maybe duncan's name will go up on a new building at west texas a&m university as a nice gesture from texas higher ed holdem's biggest winner thus far that being wt now this is what i'm gonna leave you with and we'll get in with it the rest of the week in looking at all this what is sharp's motivation in fighting back is it that he wants to maintain the monopoly and i'm just going to throw a conspiracy theory out there because i've heard this from a couple of people now cloning is what many see is the biggest emerging industry in the or the biggest emerging sector within the veterinarian industry is Sharp holding on because he knows that he can, by virtue, control cloning? I didn't write about that in the piece because I'm not to a place where I want to put that in print, but I can suggest it here on the radio. Whenever you're growing human hearts and pigs, and vice versa, you're holding the cards for a lot more than just feeding people. And that's why it makes a lot of sense why, even on the tech side, maybe you'd want that on the health sciences center campus i don't know maybe there's something to that maybe there's not we'll look into that more but for now i want to thank you for taking time to tune in more on othersideoftexas.com we'll post that piece to the dallas morning news be up on our twitter feed i want to thank you and then go hang out it's bowling night great family below average food at the bowling alley we'll see you tomorrow here on the other side of texas